how do we want to be in this world? And how do we co-create spaces where people can come in and bring their individual gifts and their different perspectives? And the full flourishing self cannot be limited by these paradigms that someone else has decided for what it means to be and become our full selves. Whose truth are we telling? Well, what's actually going on in this space around this um, idea of knowledge, like whose knowledge matters? Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid Ed News. Today's guest is Larissa Rabin. Larissa is a designer and leader of professional learning at Ed Partnerships International. And before joining Ed Partnerships, she was the head of teaching and learning at the Caulfield Grammar School. Larissa comes with a wealth of experience, but also wealth of wisdom. This episode, you'll see that we'll talk about quite a few things, including power, agency, nature, asking the question, who's at the table when it comes to making decisions? Whose truth are we telling? How is that truth determined? In the meantime, check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.design and of course, Intrepid Ed News. You'll find um, there a bunch of articles from uh, some great writers. That's uh, www.intrepidednews.com. And again, uh, Coconut Thinking website is www.coconut-thinking.design. So thank you for listening, and I will leave space to my conversation with Larissa. Well, hi, Larissa. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. You and I have known each other in the LinkedIn world for quite a bit now, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting to know a bit more of your thoughts and your projects as we go into the episode. But in the meantime, I will ask you the first question we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Great. Thanks, Benjamin. Um, It's also been a lovely pleasure um, getting to know you and your work through LinkedIn and all the great connections that we're starting to form, um, I think is really important to our ways of being and the work that we're trying to do going forward. So I guess, who am I? Um, I'd say I'm very passionate, curious, reflective learner. Um, And I think, you know, someone who's always looking for the joyous moments in life and being part of something greater than self. So I think that's a big part of who I am. I also think um, something that shapes me is that um, I think I grew up in a time of great freedom, which I think is perhaps different to now in terms of, and when I say that great freedom to explore place, um, particularly my local area and my local surroundings. So I think for me, um, that has had a big impact on who I am in terms of, you know, I grew up where there was freedom to meander along the river, to be in the bushlands, to do a lot of bushwalking, camping, to really notice place, um, to really notice how place physically and emotionally and the land shapes spirit as well. So I think that's had a big part on influencing who I am. And because of, I think, that I also grew up in a time of education being very free in the sense that it was really about young people exploring who they were um, and how, how they were in that local environment. So it was very much working with natural materials um, and that nature was a big part of my world as I grew up. So I think that's always been a big part of my thinking, my way of being and my interactions, um, I think. So also, um, I think one of the things that I guess um, in that space then leads to this sense of, you know, really committed to the full flourishing of individuals. And I guess that's shaped by this idea that, um, you know, I guess in the education sector in particular, it's, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on about what young people can know and deeply understand and do. Whereas I think I'm committed to that full flourishing that's also about the be, like how do we want to be in this world? Um, and how do we co-create spaces where people can come in and bring their individual gifts and their different perspectives? Um, and I believe those are the things that really enable us to perhaps disrupt some of the things that are the status quo now so that we can actually reimagine um, greater possibilities going forward where uh, people are positioned agentically and where we can really look at the, um, the interdependence of everything. Um, so I think it takes us beyond just those human um, endeavors in that space. There's a lot there that I want to explore, particularly in terms of the relationships and the interconnectedness of all things. But first, how do you define learning? 
I would say, you know, obviously I think learning is very much, um, it is a social endeavour, it is active. Um, and when I say that, I mean it has a social element to it. Um, so social in the sense that it's um, societal as well. You know, it's, it's again that idea of um, being part of the world and really defining for ourselves what does it actually mean to be part of the world? Um, I think that learning, it, it's a big part about our identity. Um, so it's driven by a desire to be, um, a desire to, um, to do as well. And I think it's full of determination, curiosity. I think learning is also, um, it's deeply within our bodies. Um, and I think that's that shaping again of place and space uh, and however we want to define those things. I think they're much more than the simplistic views that we have of them. So I think it's always about, um, as you talk about too, um, it's who we are and who we are becoming and that desire to be part of that something, I think is um, a big part of learning. And I think it's also learning is shaped by uh, where you are and who you are with in that moment in time. So that can be physically, emotionally and spiritually. Um, and I think it is very situated and contextual. So it's always in flux and flow, I think, that learning. I think it's also shaped uh, very much by the past and it does have that future projectual element in it. Um, and then I think it's about figuring out those different pathways and, and how they influence each other. So I think it's, yeah, I really like that ecological lens perhaps that we bring to that idea about learning as well. I really like what you said about learning being contextual, about considering place and time so that it really does become a question of space-time, even maybe space-time matter. But how do we deal with the prevalent view of education, the dominant paradigm that sees learning as pretty much a one-way street where you fill kids with knowledge like pails of water, as, a, as they say, the banking system of pedagogy, as Paulo Freire would say. How do we work within that dominant paradigm that doesn't always take into account context, that doesn't always take into account the situational side? In fact, really, really does when you think about standardized testing and, and the measures that we have. How do we work within the system that sees learning as a way to make people better? This idea of progress, this idea of the individual, rather than looking at the individual within a relationship with context. And context, of course, being the assemblage, being everyone around us, everything around us, being where we are in time and space. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're great questions. I think um, in that sense of how, how do we work with place, I think one of the things that um, I think that I've been particularly interested about this idea of how do we work with place lately too is this um like you said these i think we live in this paradigm at the moment where um you know this neoliberalism capitalism um and this real colonial view as well i think is actually a discourse that is perhaps shaping the current place but it's actually um it's, it's really shifting or it's continuing to stay in a place that is a very deficit view, I think, of being and becoming um, within and for community. So I think this idea that I believe that we really need to start to delve into these spaces more deeply to truly to name them so that we can actually notice what's going on in these spaces in order to disrupt them. Um, I think one of the things, though, in this space as well, that we talk about, as we said, you know, these very um, neoliberal paradigms, that it's this idea of um, how do we co-create places? How do we co-create spaces? Um, and even intergenerationally, how do we co-create spaces where each can bring their different offer um, and their different gifts that enable us actually to go forward in a more collective, collaborative way. Um, and that idea that those things are situated within the individual, but the individual within and for community. So I think that's the other thing that um, we've talked, you know, thinking a little bit about is that education has become very individualistic. And I think that's really problematic in terms of this very individualistic view, um, which is all of those paradigms that we talked about earlier in that sense of colonialism, um, 
that this sense of this Eurocentric knowledge is always honoured. Um, whereas we really, I think we have a lot to learn and tap into about the feeling of place, this feeling of what it means to feel, to be a learner. There's a couple of things here that you really made me think of. This, this idea of tension within the neoliberal order. On the one hand, there's this push to separate, to individualize, to atomize. But on the other hand, there is this push to commodify, to standardize. And this idea that everything should be treated perhaps within the market as something that has value. On the other hand, this idea that we're disconnected from one another, which uh, uh, maybe perhaps feeds into the commodification. I don't know, something to think about. Um, but I guess when I use the word standardize, I, I do think of it in the terms of what it means for the machine and for the industrial process that you replace a part and everything is the same, so you replace a part, which is really the inspiration behind teaching and learning standards. So I, I want to ask you about this tension, about this tension between the individualization, the separation, and the commodification of learning. How does that work? And how can we get through this thinking about where agency comes into play, where we have agency, it's not given to us, but at the same time, we are thrown within the system that that morphs agency into a, a bizarre sense that you know our power is taken away because it does ultimately become about power. Mm, they are great questions. I think it's um. I wonder. I I wonder, in terms of um, I don't think they're complementary. Um, to be honest, I think that um, I think the individualistic, um, I think the individual is within the endeavor, but I think these ideas, I think these um, this idea of standardization, um, this idea of um, being better, you know, we're sort of on about, it's very competitive in this sense of, you know, it's about me being better than you. And you might be a bit better than me, but I could be better than you in this thing. So it kind of, I think it has this very competitive um, aspect to it. Um, I think that, I think it's, it's, it's complex in that I think, yes, there, there's always the individual, but where is the individual within the community? Where is the individual within something that's bigger than the self? And I think that that is that sense of what we really need to be thinking about in terms of these standards. Standards for who? For what? Who decides on these standards? Who decides what matters around here? And I think that's that point about this um, Eurocentric knowledge. So it's always been who, who decides what the standard is? Who decides what the thing is that matters around here? Because there's always going to be those who um, those standards don't resonate. They don't, they, they actually, they don't define us, but society keeps pushing back to say these do define you. Um, whereas I think that's a very limiting view. And I think that is that these um, ways of that tension, it, it influence identity. And I think that's very destructive in terms of when we're really talking at the moment a lot about agency. Um, what does it mean to be agentic? Um, and I think that when we're talking about those spaces, we actually have to really recognise what, again, are these things that are going on around this space that are actually um, detrimental to what it means to be the full flourishing self. And the full flourishing self um, cannot be limited by these paradigms that someone else has decided um, for what it means to be and become our full selves. So I think about how in nature things grow from the inside. A tree grows, of course, by getting water and soil within its context, but ultimately it grows from the inside and it starts off as a little sapling and then grows into a big redwood or an oak tree or a pine tree, whatever it may be. How do we work in this system where standards are imposed to us from the outside, standards that we have to meet, while reconciling the fact that in nature and all this grows from the inside? this tension between the externality and the internality. How do we work with this tension? And specifically, I'm thinking about what would it take to break free from that? What would it take to break free from the externalities, from this pressure of standards telling us what we should be? I, I don't think we could come up with a roadmap, but what are the first steps perhaps? 
Mm, yeah, that's a lovely um, question as well. In terms, so I think when you talk there about nature and that idea that nature um, grows inside us, about these different types of trees, I think I like to when you bring in the ecosystem because you think, what are the things that shape that tree? What are the things that that tree needs in order to flourish? Um, how does that tree want to be? And again, it's influenced by place. It's influenced by time. Uh, and it's influenced by the things that are going on around it. But then how do we come to understand more deeply what are those things that that tree needs um, or those aspirations? And I think, you know, in terms of that, um, whilst we don't have a roadmap, I think one of the really powerful initial things is listening listening for understanding you know so we can think about it in the tree we can think about it in the young person the adult whoever that person is that we're fortunate to be in the presence of um, it's really thinking about how do we create the conditions to deeply listen for understanding and I think that when we start to do that with um, particularly if we're talking in this education space of young people in school context if that's what we want to call it um, how, how do we come together to actually ask the questions and to be present and open to what comes forward so I think that is a really powerful beginning space and I think that we often have found that when that initially happens that for young people it's like well what is it that you're wanting to know from me because we are so so boxed into these, um, enculturated into these ways of being. So I think at first it's really about, well, how do we honour the space of staying open to deeply listening? And it needs to be an ongoing dialogue. So it's not this one-off, okay, I've spoken to a couple of people, now I understand something. But how do you stay in the dialogue with young people um, in a way that is responsive to what is occurring in a way that builds that sense of trust and relational ways of being. And I actually think in doing that, there's the clues, there's the gift, there's the gold in whatever gets revealed, that is the stuff that matters. That is the stuff that we need to be paying attention to. And also paying attention to what isn't revealed in those conversations or in those dialogical encounters. Um, and I, I actually believe those are the things that can disrupt and help us to recognise that these enculturated paradigms are not necessarily the things that matter greatly to many of us, or they're much more than that. So I think these, um, as we said earlier, this idea of these commodity, these standards, um, there's so much, 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 much more that matters to our young people, to our people involved in learning alongside and with young people. It's way beyond that. So we're, very, we're limiting it, we're stifling it, and there isn't any joy in that. One of the things that's become clear to me is the problem that I have, I suppose, with this idea of giving students agency or empowering students. Because to me, that says that we've taken away agency. To me, that means that we've taken away power when actually it's not the individual that has agency, it's the assemblage that has agency. Everything has agency because of how it affects others and other things. So that really um, troubles me in many ways in terms of how even that language is a language of power, domination, and control. It's a language of separation without realizing the connections that we have. But how does that work in terms of deep listening? How does that work in terms of giving space to others in terms of what fills the space when we listen? So that listening itself becomes a response to where we are and, and to the others into our relationship. Where, where does that happen? And and tell us more about your thoughts on, on this idea of opening up the space for listening and how that relates to agency. Mm, yes. So I think one of the things that um, I think it's about realizing agency rather than giving it or taking it, I think is really important. And I think that we have simplified agency and I think like as you're talking there about power and empowering, empowering is still about power. You know, I have power, you don't. So I might give you some of mine, um, et cetera. So I think in um, those spaces of this deeply listening for understanding, I think our processes are the honour agency or not. So I, I strongly, you know, feel that 
If we believe in the capacity of the other, then we are already in the space of creating a condition for the other to come in. So I think it's that sense of being open. Um, and then that's a very physical thing too. That's a very feeling thing in terms of how do I want to be in this space? So you and I talking today, how do we want to be in this space for each other that enables each of us to come together um, in ways that will enrich both of our lives, enrich both of us in this space, and therefore something special will come from it that will take us forward in a new way together as well as individually. Um, and I think it's within that space and it's how we come into that. It's our belief in the other and our belief in staying open to what is revealed um, and being really deeply curious, deeply curious and in service to the other. So I'm deeply curious about Benjamin because it is in this space that um, things will be realised for him that will enable him to take himself forward, but knowing that we go forward together as well. And I think that's the power of the agency in terms of it's realising that deep core belief within ourselves and that others believe in us to make things happen. And I think that um, agency is tricky or complex at the moment in, for young people because it sits with adults. So if adults do not believe in the capacity of the young person, they can actually shut it down. And I don't mean that's something that adults do um, unkindly or but I think it's again this idea we really have to name and notice these things that are getting in the way of us being our full selves in order for this sense of agency to be realized and enacted in ways that are for the individual but again the individual within community because I think that um, agency can also be conceived as very individualistic too um, yes, Benjamin, you have all the agency. You can do whatever you like. Um, but it's like, well, hang on, there's moral complications that come with that. There's something that you said that I don't want to gloss over, and it's this idea of agency as relational. It's about opening up the space for agency to come about, to realize its potential. Oftentimes, agency is seen, again, as belonging to the individual, we give someone the ability to exercise voice and choice. We give someone the ability to pick a project they're interested in or contribute to the community. And we are very proud and happy that they're doing good things, which I'm not belittling that. And I'm not certainly uh, saying that that's not something that we shouldn't celebrate by any stretch of the imagination. But if we don't also celebrate the relational side of that and keep the agency as the individual, then it becomes very action-oriented. It is me coming in and taking action to make the world a better place, which ostensibly looks pretty good. It sounds fantastic, but that also disconnects us from the world. It's in many ways, or it can be, a colonial mindset of trying to make the world a better place. I mean, I don't want to take away from all these wonderful projects, don't get me wrong, but I, I think that may, perhaps we need to appreciate the relational nature of how we respond to a situation rather than thinking that we can control and dominate it. So I think that agency um, in some spaces has very much been about this idea of voice and choice, um, which I think is, 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 is problematic again and simplistic in terms of agency. Um, it's not choice. Agency is so, so, so much more than that. And I think like you were saying there, it it's definitely sits in this um, relational space. And I think, again, it's very enculturated that we're always on about doing. You know, what are we going to do in order for this to, to happen? Um, how, do we, how do we add in agency to whatever it is that we're doing? But I guess, you know, when you say we ask the question, if agency is a way of being, how do we want to be? So how do we want to be with ourselves, and how do we want to be with others? And I think it's um, when it's in that relational space, it's, it's not about, yes, we give the kids agency and they can go off and choose the project that they want to study or they can go and work out who they want to work with today and, and how they want to present their learning and all those sorts of things. It's sort of like, again, it's still sitting within the confines of what's always been. Um, and so it's this idea as we went back earlier and said, you know, when we deeply listen for understanding and create the conditions, those things that get revealed start to give us the clues of how do we create the conditions for agency to be realised and enacted upon. 
I think it's those spaces because it's in there that we actually get to the feeling. So how does it feel to be? Um, and a really lovely example of this was recently I was talking to a young person who was probably about 10 and they were talking to me like sometimes, you know, we hear this thing of goals. What's your learning goal today, um, et cetera. And again, they're in that very enculturated doing. And this person said, well, I recognise that um, when I solve problems, I have this certain way I go about doing it. Um, and I noticed that other people um, often don't do this in the way that I do. So he said, I was actually thinking that when my friends are talking about their learning, I might um, explain to them how I do some particular thing more because that's something I really want to work on is how I talk about my thinking. So anyway, they sort of explained this scenario where they had spoken and one of their friends said, oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a little bit stuck here. Can you help me? And the person said, oh, yes, what I can do is um, explain my thinking in this way and work with you in this particular way. And anyway, that, that worked and um, they had a really powerful learning experience together. But the young person, when they reflected on it, said to me, you know, it just felt right. It just felt so good. And they said, I didn't know that I would have this feeling inside me where I just felt happy um, to know that I can support someone else in their learning. And that little scenario was just this power of actually that was created in a space where that person was enabled the opportunity to talk deeply about their learning, to deeply about what matters to them, something that they wanted to strengthen within themselves and it was a sense of feeling of how does it feel in a learning space um, when this person realised and was positioned agentically. And there was a great belief in this person and their capacity to be. And I, and I think those, um, those are the spaces, these relational processes, that we can start to move to this idea that each of us has an offer to bring. And I think that sometimes in schooling context it's been very much about teachers stepping back in order for young people to step forward and it's like no it's not that at all it's actually we all need to come and bring everything we all have together and a strong belief in the other that enables things to happen and I think it's the power of believing in your own capacity to create those conditions and and believing in not knowing where we're going but believing in the process so I really appreciate what you bring up in terms of feeling, in terms of how learning is an embodied experience. It's not just about the brain. It's about the feeling and what we bring to a space. It's about the relationships. But this goes counter to a lot of what a modern and, and positivist discourse says about learning, that it, that it is a cognitive experience. We, we, we mistrust the feeling. In fact, Descartes said so. I, I think, therefore, I am. And, and the complete separation of the mind and the feeling and how the feeling is not to be trusted. And this, of course, goes back to, uh, to much um, uh, Christian uh, teachings as well. And, of course, Victorian times and, and all this fear and, and resentment of what we sense and, and the rejection of that. How do we work in this system that so distrusts feeling? How do we open that space when so much is about the cognitive, about the thinking, about the mechanistic order? How, how do we work with that? I think there that um, it is really tricky. So I think like you're saying, how do we work with it? Even naming that we need to work with it is the beginning point, I think and noticing what is actually going on here. Um, and I think too that this, um, you know, this gets to this idea around expertise as well. Like when we're talking about here, about this, this knowledge, this, um, you know, we're kind of talking about this truth. Um, and in a way we kind of can start to talk about, well, hang on a minute, whose truth are we telling? Um, well, what's actually going on in this space around this um, idea of knowledge, like whose knowledge matters. I think that idea, as you said earlier, this, you know, when, when we can actually name that, I think that's a beginning point. I think this idea that within here, as we were talking before about these um, colonial paradigms that we need to explore more deeply, which I think gets to this idea around when we talk about knowledge, 
It's whose knowledge, who decides what the knowledge is that actually matters, who's truth telling. Um, and I think that we actually need to start to notice that those paradigms are actually at play here um, and that they're very polarizing. I think one of the things here is that this work is really tricky and complex because I think, you know, some people talk about this as the soft skills in terms of, oh, those are those things over there. But we really need this knowledge attainment. We really need these things. But I think that um, in a strange way, a powerful positive is those things are not working for us um, as a society. You know, I think we're, we're actually in a time where we think um, does is expertise the thing that we all really want here um, in terms of, you know, this idea whose knowledge matters, um, why does knowledge matter at the cost of everything else? Uh, it's actually, um, you know, the situation that I think we're currently in, in terms of, you know, issues to do with our climate, issues to do with First Nations justice, all those things. We don't actually have them in, in, in ways that are enabling us as a world to, um, to regenerate. We're sort of stuck in this place that we're in. So it's kind of in a way of saying what we're currently doing is actually extremely detrimental to everything. Um, and I think that that is actually almost a, a lovely clue as to we need to be doing something different in order for this full flourishing for the human and the non-human in order for us as the world to go forward. So I think this idea of um, expertise is that expertise can actually be very limiting. You know, if, if we decide that the expert is the thing that matters, then sometimes when we have this sense of expertise, then we've already shut down the idea of that the learning um, is continuous, that it is um, impacted on where we find ourselves, who we find ourselves with within this idea of time. And expertise can be very limiting in that we're no longer open necessarily because I'm an expert. So, um, you know, you invite me in, I'm the expert now, so I know, so I can pass on my knowledge. And then again, I sit with power and I, I'm in a powerful position. So I think that gets away from when we shift that space of expertise to this way of feeling and this way of being in spaces, then I think there is actually so much more opportunity for, um, for people to realise agency, um, for people to start to go beyond the bounds of just this knowledge. Knowledge is not enough. No, as you're speaking, I think about this idea of sage on stage and how we want to stop the sage on stage and how we want to stop the teacher as the expert. But one of the things I'm realising as well is that actually teachers aren't treated like experts. They're made to follow uh, lesson plans from above, textbooks, standards. They're made to follow direct instructions for themselves. They're made to question themselves if they don't have the right quantitative data. They're not always treated as experts. It's more like they're in the middle, in the middle between a body of expertise and the students, and they're there as a delivery mechanism. I'm thinking also about, I think it was you who might've told me or someone told me about in Australia, how now they're working towards daily lesson plans, how um, uh, every teacher will have to follow this. Now, I, I'm not incredibly familiar with this, so maybe you can, can enlighten us or, or, or let us know a little bit more. What, what's going on in Australia and how are teachers treated or not treated as experts in that particular case? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, in Australia at the moment, there is a big tension. Um, and I think it's, um, it's a really, it's, it's a very challenging time and I think in a way, though, it's a very exciting time because I feel like that we're kind of at a tipping point where it's going to fall apart. And I think it, that's exciting in the sense that it's the disruption. And I think the disruption will come from the young people. I, I really believe that this, the young people are the disruptors. And when I say that, I mean that when you listen deeply to the young people, when you create the conditions for them to come into these spaces so that we have this sense of understanding deeply how they are feeling in this experience of learning and once you have that sense you can't possibly go back to doing what you always did because you know something different now so when you open up this space and these young people come and we get this sense of how they're feeling about like this is my intention as the teacher but this is how you're experiencing that in your full body 
once we have that understanding, it's like, well, that's things start to shift because I can no longer be the teacher that I was in that way because it's actually not enabling your full flourishing. You're not feeling great about who you are and who you're becoming. Um, and I think that that tension is starting to bubble up to the fore because now these young people um, are also saying, you know, things need to be different um, in order for, for this flourishing. So I think that the big tension here in Australia in the system at the moment is around this idea of expertise, that you need to be the expert. So this space that we're talking about is actually um, getting to the core of teacher identity as well. So who does it actually mean to be the lead learner in these learning spaces or to be the adult learner in these learning spaces? Um, and so we're really getting deeply at the core of our identity as a person and our identity as this so-called language of teacher. And the system, I think, as you were saying there, is this expertise is also positioning us as technicians. And, and teachers are not technicians. I don't believe they're technicians. I don't, I don't think that any educators I've spoken to are passionate about the idea of being a technician or are passionate about the idea of being an expert. I think our passion as educators is actually about understanding our young people, understanding what are the things that um, we aspire to or they aspire to for themselves and we aspire to for them. And then how do we create that condition? So I'm not saying it gets away from knowledge and understanding and actions and ways of being and doing, but it's all, it's not one at the, um, you know, one, one being exemplified as that's the thing that matters the most but it's actually all of these things deeply matter. And what does it mean when one's not present? Um, I think is really important here too. So I think that, you know, this idea now that we have these learning intentions for young people, and it's like, again, who decides what that learning intention is? Does that actually deeply matter to me? Is that going to enable me something for me? And I think learning intentions say, they, they tell you what matters. So it's like, not you, Benjamin, you don't get to decide that. Someone else does. And someone else says this thing matters. And therefore, that, that actually shapes me and how I view myself. Um, and I think that that is a real tension, these learning, um, these learning intentions, this success criteria. So I think, again, one of the things in this space is language as well. Language deeply matters. Language signals something to the other. So when I'm using these languages that are very neoliberal, that are very Eurocentric language, again, I am saying something about who you are and who you are becoming and whether that is going to fit in what society decides matters. So one of the things I'm thinking up here is how so many systems are exam-based, high-stakes testing of performance. And really what we're asking is for children to go through what is often an unbearable amount of stress hence high rates of suicide, of depression, of separation and anxiety, putting them through systems of exams and performance that may or may not reflect what they'll need outside of school. And yet we justify it saying, oh, but they just have to get through it. Oh, it's a way for them to show what they're worth. It, it, it's almost like a rite of passage that is all negative, that, it, that, is, that is about rigor, proving yourself, proving how you can be tough and outlast the system and show not just how smart you are, because sometimes these tests, because they're standardized, they, you know, they, they don't necessarily reward creativity, but, but how you can go through it, your, 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 your ability to, to, to suffer through. I, I don't know how to resolve this, but, but how can we work within those systems? How can we resist that culture? I'm not suggesting that we have a solution to this or an answer, because it's not that easy, clearly, but, but maybe we could start putting ideas on the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, we definitely need to be putting some ideas on the table. And I think when we're putting ideas on the table, we're asking ourselves who's at the table as well as we do this, I think is really critical. Um, so who, yeah, who, who is that? And, and how do we then start this idea of um, noticing about what is actually going on? And I do feel really hopeful that we are noticing more and more. And I, and I definitely feel hopeful that our schooling system is starting to recognise that this is extremely problematic area, that our young people are saying, 
are either compliantly disengaged or disengaged with their feet and not turning up to these places called school, but they are going to other places. We are actually starting to see, and particularly like you said, working with youth, and I too have been working with youth about, I think a really powerful thing from COVID that um, has actually enabled something interesting for young people is that they've started to see, actually there is this stronger belief in their capacity in the sense that, they were afforded the opportunity to think about how will I learn in this space now? Um, how do I now want to be in this space? Because it got disrupted. And so one of the positives that I really experienced, and I sort of did some longitudinal research with young people over a period of time in the later secondary schooling years, where what they actually started to notice was that school learning wasn't working for them. So being in this place, didn't actually enable their full flourishing. So they themselves, I thought was really powerful, started to seek out a huge range of different avenues for their learning. Um, and then coming back into school, I think that we noticed that they started to recognise that if those things are not in place, the standards don't matter. So I think we often say, how do we get the kids through? Like you said, how do we get them through? So they get this thing and then they can go off and, and live this amazing life that they're going to live. But like you're saying, actually, how do we recognise that the young person brings that stuff with them into this formalised schooling world? And how do we tap into that and honour it and keep it going? Because I think that when we often look at the education, we often go back to the very young people and think, you know, that, that experience when they're in, in Australia, what we call kindergarten, um, is it is so much about the belief in the young person and enabling their full self. And it's very much the full self about their, um, their presence with the physicality of the environment and even the things that shape them in that physical environment. So the people, um, the place, the materials, all of those things. And I think we forget that as schooling goes through and we start to take those things away and then it all becomes about this big focus on knowledge and understanding and that that is the only thing that matters. So, we're, again, I think we're, um, that is leading to illness. And I think when we start to recognise that, we start to say, okay, that place, um, it can no longer be. So we need all these people at the table. Um, and, again, I do think it sounds very simplistic, but I do think it gets back to this idea of, these relational spaces of how do we want to be in these spaces? How do we create the conditions for deep listening to the other? How do we create the spaces to stay open and not judge? Because I think we can quickly jump in and judge things, but how do we stay open to a range of perspectives, um, a, a range of ways of knowing? I think that's something that, and I think that we're really fortunate in terms of First Nations people offer us this, you know, um, a much deeper, complex, um, more interconnected ways of knowing um, and understanding that I think we're tapping into um, to en enable this space to shift. I really like this idea that you present about who's at the table, asking that question, who decides what truth is, who decides what knowledge is, how come it is that only certain people can produce knowledge rather than knowledge produced within the assemblage? And it makes me also think about all the neoliberal language that you also evoked, success, success criteria, what it means to be successful, outcomes that we want, all these measures that we have that really provide only one perspective. Now, we talk about success meaning different things. What does that mean for us? But at the end of the day, when we still have a system that is exam-based, that is grade-based, that is driven by a set curriculum where there are certain standards, there really is only one form of success within that particular paradigm, and we don't value the other ones as much. I guess my question is, how do we work with this in the post-pandemic world where after almost two years, and, and really before that, it just came out a lot more during COVID, kids realize that they could just learn everything they want on YouTube. And if I sit through this class and through this person talking to me, you know, I get through it, then I could go learn what I really want on YouTube. Mm, absolutely. And I think that kind of comes back to that idea that we both just spoke about in terms of who comes to the table um, and who 
and when do they come to the table as well, I think is critical because we often hear this in school and too, and even this post-COVID. And I think um, you talked about this as well and others I've heard, you know, that we were all so excited. I mean, yes, we understand the devastation of COVID and, you know, don't want to underestimate that at all, but we were excited with this possibility that thinking something is getting disrupted um, and in a way it was like Yahoo, because something really exciting could be reimagined. And then it's like we kind of have come, you know, we're kind of in this post-COVID sort of space. And now we're sort of at this crisis point of going, oh, hang on, we're, we're losing the gold again. Like we, we, we're not taking the time to slow down, to deeply understand what evolved in that space, what was really, what was being reimagined by the young people. So in a way, I think, you know, there's a great learning in this for us in terms of some of the things we spoke about earlier, that if we don't actually take the time to slow down, to deeply understand and capture the essence of what was evolving in that space, then we've kind of lost the clues of how to reimagine. And I think this is the power of coming back to this idea of these relational ways of being deeply listening, staying in the dialogue and, and even in this co-design space, so we often talk now about in learning, how do we co-design? How do we want to partner with young people um, for this realisation of agency and so forth? And when do they come to the table? Because I'm the teacher expert, so do I do the designing here and then the young person comes in? But it's like, actually, when we listen deeply to the young people, and I've, you know, as you have, we've spoken so much to young people, it's part of our everyday lives for the last 20-odd years, that the capacity of the young people are definitely saying, I can, I'm very much present at the table. What I, I don't know why I was never there in the first place. I've absolutely got the capacity. And it's about you, the adults, believing in my capacity and creating the conditions for me to be present. And I actually think that um, when you said, you know, the fear of going into this space, it's messy. We don't know what's going to happen. Our identity is shifting and being shaped by this. So who we are yesterday can't be who we are today so it's starting to change and it's emerging but I think it's really exciting because there's new possibilities so when we stop feeling you have to be the expert that because you're younger than me I have to be in control and I need to have some power here and it can be for good but I've still got a bit of power but it's like well hang on no when we create this space where we come in we come into it from the beginning. We recognise we each have different offers to make. We can learn with and from each other and alongside each other and deeply listen. Then we've just created the space to disrupt and reimagine. And I think then that's where it starts. And I don't know how that evolves and what that's going to look like, but I believe that when you're in it, something really powerful happens. And that is the space of feeling. It is the space of being. And I think it's the space of beauty. And I think that young people really feel very enlivened by that space. And the young people I've particularly spoken to recently, they all, when whatever was expressed and then as adults, we looked at it, it was all this moment of going, oh, that is the joy. That is why we come to this place every day. That is why we love being present, young people and older people together, because it's this feeling that we have. And when we heard the young people talk about how they felt it was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is beautiful. Like, how we feel, we feel so good about ourselves. There's kindness, there's respect, there's great care, and there's love. And I think those, those things um, enable this reimagining. So going back to COVID, it's like we've skipped the step of slowing down deeply to understand what was emerging because the young people gave us incredible clues about what needs to be present in order for them to um, fully flourish in how they want to be and who they are being in the learning space. So I think they have said, you know what, school is not it. This typical schooling space you've created, it doesn't work. I know I feel so good about myself and I can actually enable things to happen for me as a learner and follow learning trajectories and pathways that matter. So I think it's that sense too, what is the learning that actually matters and who does it matter to and how do we know? And then, like you said earlier, how do we, why do we have to, you know, we, we often talk about, so how are you going to measure it? How are you going to measure the kids learning, the things that matter? Well, it's also, is that the real question? Uh, you know, how do you measure it? And what, what are these, 
what are these measures? Who, you know, like they're very abstract. And again, they're decided by who? And I think they are very Eurocentric and neoliberal and all those things. And it's about noticing and asking ourselves these questions that are really tricky. Like who decides these measurements? And who decides that you've gone from there to there? And, and, and it's not linear. So um, I think it's all those things like learning isn't linear. And I think that we've got really stuck in this paradigm of things being linear, things being simplified. Um, and that's why I like when you talk about, you know, this ecology and this interdependence that everything is shaped um, by the other and shaping. So we're constantly in that space. So how do we stay true and honour it? Well, thanks, Larissa. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I'm going to leave it over to you now. Maybe this is the et cetera section. What's on your mind? What are the things that we can look forward to with you? What, what, what's on your horizon? Well, thanks, Benjamin. Um, I think what's on my horizon is I am really curious now about um, intergenerational partnering. So at the moment, I'm really, really curious about how do we create partnerships between young people and older people in ways that um, really strengthen the collective. So I think we've, you know, at times we talk about um, agency for young people and it's like this idea of absolutely, but agency for all. So I'm really interested in how do we create partnerships where, um, and I think we're seeing some really beautiful things in community um, I feel like I'm seeing them more in community than in the traditional schooling system of where we create those partnerings that actually enable the full flourishing of everyone in a really powerful way. So that's something I'm very curious to understand more deeply. Um, and I'm also really um, curious that I feel like we really need to, particularly in Australia, I think at the moment, I mean, it's always been present, but more so now this idea around truth telling, like whose truth are we telling? Who decides about knowledge? Um, how do we kind of understand more these Eurocentric paradigms that we're currently in and how they're shaping learning? And I think that when we're doing that, great things can happen. So they're some of the things I'm really, really curious about at the moment. And also really curious about... Um, the feeling space in terms of kindness and, you know, those relational ways of being, how might they um, create the spaces for new opportunities? Well, thanks, Larissa. Very much appreciated. Thanks, Benjamin. Take care. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check out our website on www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find articles, resources, link to this podcast, our podcast where we were guests and so forth. That's www.coconut-thinking.design and of course, Intrepid Ed. www.intrepided.com. Thank you again and see you soon. Bye-bye.